This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then curators Kirsty Grant and Denise Whitehouse joined me in the studio to talk about the new exhibition at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art called Design for Life, Grant and Mary Featherston. Then finally... David Ritter, CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, joined me to talk about his new book, The Cold Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy. And we are back on Uncommon Sense. This is 3 RFM in Melbourne and, as promised, Ben Eltham, a, the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, joins me in the studio. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. Good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah? Yeah. I'm really liking your sweater today. Yeah, I've just moved into proper knitwear action at the moment. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah. It's like really quality, like thick it's, uh, it's 100% New Zealand wool. Thank Hell you, Amy. Yes. yes. There's my envy. <laughs> uh, luckily, I just uh, got myself some like m- really nice thin merino on sale. So I'm going to be, you know, rocking the sweater myself soon. It's a very classy jacket you're wearing, if I may say. Oh, thank you. See, there you go. This is the beauty of radio. You can all just try and imagine and picture and guess what we're wearing because yes. I'm not even going to tell you. Um, Ben, after that um, fabulous fashion segment, uh, yes. let's head into federal politics. <laughs> Maybe we should. We, I guess we have to. Um, <laughs> this, well, in the last week, a few things have happened. Um, let's just get the little, the bits and pieces, the kind of piecemealy bits out of the way yeah, and then we sure. can get into the nitty gritty bits. Um, so recently we've seen uh, Bill Shorten make a bit of a so-called captain's call on the company tax cuts and what Labor will do should it come into government. What was that kind of backflip, I guess you could say? Yeah, I mean, one of those ones where it's a little bit hard to work out what's going on, but basically Bill Shorten said that he, if, if Labor were returned to government, he would look to repeal some of the company tax cuts that have already been passed. These are the company tax cuts that have already gone through the Senate uh, for companies under a turnover of $50 million a year. And he said he would repeal them for companies earning between 10 and $50 million a year. Now, there was a little bit of uh, back and forward within the Labor Party about that. And um, a few days later, he came out and announced that uh, no, he wouldn't be doing that uh, should Labor be returned to office. So he had mm. to sort of eat a bit of crow there and apologise and, and there was a bit of a backflip. Um, no one could really work out what that was all about except we think it's about the factions essentially, that he didn't have the support within the Labor Party to affect that policy change, uh, which is interesting because I think um, as a, a recent poll that came out showed uh, most people would be in favour of that. Of that yeah, provision. be highly popular. Yeah, yeah, because people want companies to pay more tax. Naturally, yes. And um, in our in my final interview, we'll be talking about uh, mining companies and how they avoid tax. So there's oh yeah, that looks really interesting. Major ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can't wait for that. Accelerated depreciation and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. And the massive subsidies and handouts they receive yep. from the federal. Let's government. Let's not forget the marketing hubs. They're always my favourite. <laughs> 
<laughs> and corporate social responsibility. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, and what else has Bill Shorten done? I just saw that he promised to restore penalty rates in the first 100 days of government. Now, penalty rates, they really started the ball rolling on getting rid of them or reducing them in the first place by um, getting the Fair Work Commission to review them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is really one of Labor's legacies from the 20. 20- 2007 to 2013 Labor government. Uh, when they came in in 2007, they had to do something about work choices, which was John Howard's uh, industrial relations legislation. And they repealed work choices and they put in the Fair Work Act. And the Fair Work Act gave the power to set penalty rates to the Fair Work Commission, which is a kind of uh, industrial arbitrator, if you like. And the problem with that is that the Fair Work Commission has then been pretty diligently stacked with pro-business people by the coalition since they've been in government and that's what led to that decision by the Fair Work Commission to reduce penalty rates, Mm. particularly on Sundays, particularly for retail and hospitality workers. And that's hitting hard. We just this weekend uh, saw another reduction in penalty rates. Uh, So a reduction in wages, you know, and it's really hard to see Mm. what the economic justification of that is. Um, It was always dubious at the time when the decision was made, but particularly now in a growing economy where unemployment is falling, it's hard to see why wages should also reduce. Um, And as we know, um, it hasn't really led to any rise in employment either. So people who've crunched the numbers on this have found that, no, there haven't been any extra jobs added by, you know, cafes or or the hospitality sector in general. Mm. Um, So it seems to have gone straight into profits for the owners of those businesses. And uh, and that those sectors like hospitality and retail are really um, sectors where there's a lot of casual work and insecure work. It's part time predominantly. It's very hard to secure a full time role in those kind of sectors and be paid a decent wage. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the epicenters of wage theft. They're the epicenters of people not getting paid their superannuation. Mm. They're highly casualised, as you say. They're insecure. They're precarious. And, um, you know, that's that's the way that the workforce is going. More and more industries are, are like that. And that's one of the reasons why wages are so low at the moment. Yes, exactly. And, um the, uh, the something has been raised as a, as a bit of a stark contrast uh, that we saw parliamentarians get a pay rise at the same point that we saw penalty rates reduce. And, uh, for example, the Prime Minister and ministers get pay rises of up to $10,000. I mean, it is pretty disgusting. Yep. Um, I think it's a bit of a metaphor for modern politics, really. I mean, you know, they look after themselves. They don't really look after the average citizen Mm. or the average worker. Has parliamentary performance improved that greatly, Ben, that they deserve such a pay rise? Uh, Unfortunately, I mean, you'd have to say parliamentary performance is falling. I mean, you really would. Uh, this, This parliament has been not particularly productive in terms of legislation passed and it hasn't sat any more days than previous parliaments. No, exactly. Um, So, Ben, we'll have to watch that and see if Labor does, I guess, fulfil their promise of reversing their mistakes. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there'll be a lot of pressure on Labor from the union movement and probably from people in general uh, to change the rules, as the union movement has has called that campaign. Mm. And there Uh, is a growing campaign, isn't there? Oh, yeah. It's led very, by the ACTU. 
Yep, the union movement is solidly campaigning on changing the rules to rebalance the industrial relations regime in favour of workers um, and away from bosses. And, and I think the union movement owes workers an apology too because, um, you know, many of the people who were involved in writing that legislation back in 2008 for the Fair Work Act, they were either former unionists or active unionists. You know, the, the ACTU... Wasn't too unhappy about it back in Julia Gillard's time. Mm, this uh, was the legislation to replace work choices. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you know, I think they've they've had to they've had to own up to that they made a that they made a mistake. And, and actually, Sally McManus, the ACTU secretary, has done that. She said we got it wrong. Um, so yeah, that's the next step. Really, mm. is to try and make it easier for workers to to organise, to bargain, and indeed to take industrial action. Yes. And um, turning a bit towards our Pacific neighbours, something called the Pacific Islands Forum is coming back around again. It is an important forum, I think, because it brings together Australia as well as uh, New Zealand and its other Pacific neighbours. And um, it really is one of those rare forums where it's only those uh, actors in the room and the government of Nauru has blocked the ABC and their journalists from entering Nauru and covering that forum. I mean this is a pretty substantial development in terms of um, freedom of the press and uh, freedom of information. Well there's not a lot of freedom of the press in the Republic of Nauru uh, and, you know, this is just another consequence of Australia's meddling in the region, really, for mm. our own domestic purposes. In, in the case of Nauru, that's the purpose of locking up uh, asylum seekers and refugees um, on that island um, for the purposes of really of domestic policy. Um, so, you know, um, the reporting on asylum seekers in Nauru has angered the Nauru government and particularly the ABC has angered that government. And so they're mm. now trying to block the ABC from turning up. Yes, and it is specifically aimed at the ABC. Yes, it is, yes. Yes, because I believe the AAP will be there, which is obviously um, they distribute a lot of news stories through the wire yeah. to all outlets. Yeah, wire services will be there. But look, you know, this is also a reminder that many of the Pacific Island nations you know, uh, take a dim view of Australia. Australia is on the nose diplomatically in Mm. the region. Uh, We've been unengaged in the region for many years, apart from trying to dump refugees onto these places. Um, And, you know, we've really let our natural advantages in terms of diplomacy and aid slip in the region. And, you know, uh, that's a problem because this is meant to be Australia's region. It's really meant to be our responsibility as uh, the, the most established, richest, wealthiest nation in the region. Um, we obviously shall, you know, uh, have the majority of the defence engagement in the region. Um, we do the majority of the aid. Uh but we're not very popular with those no. company with those countries, and the and the reason is because we're quite arrogant, and the way that we treat those nations is is really um, not not as equals. You know, we, we treat them as a big brother, and, and so we're resented. Mm. And the foreign aid budget has decreased over. Well, pretty much every year. Massively decreased. Australia's been savagely cutting our foreign aid 
aid budget uh, under both governments, but particularly under the coalition. Mm. Um, we've got to the stage now really where we it's the lowest on record, our foreign aid. And many of these nations are underdeveloped or undeveloped. You know, if you look at nations like the Solomon Islands, um, they, they absolutely need aid. They need a lot of economic development assistance. Um, and by and large, we haven't been providing it except in the framework of regional security agreements like the uh, the one in the Solomon Islands. Um, you know, and, and so I think this is a wake-up call for Australia, whether the government will actually take that on board or whether they'll just posture um, seems unlikely, really. No, and um, th- it really has been quite a reactive policy and a, a recent example, which I don't believe we um, have tackled was that uh, Australia has provided aid to the Solomon Islands to build an undersea internet cable, which the only reason why Australia has stepped in really is so that um, Chinese company Huawei doesn't provide that to the Solomon Islands. We are essentially trying to, um, in a very reactive way, step in where we don't want Chinese influence. Yeah, and we're do- we're not doing it in a very smart way. No, <laughs> we're doing certainly it not a- subtle either. It's a pretty ham-fisted response to growing Chinese influence in the region. Um, and, and really, we're being outplayed at our own game. I mean, when China comes into these, these countries, uh, they come in with offers of development and offers of investment, uh, much-needed infrastructure investment in many cases. So you, it's not surprising that many of these countries are turning to China uh, for the investment that they need for the future of their citizens. Mm. We're not providing it in Australia. And really, it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, there's no reporting on the Pacific, really, in the Australian media. No. The ABC has really got rid of most of its foreign correspondents in the Pacific. Uh, We don't really know what's going on in most of these places. We don't. Absolutely, we don't. Um, And Ben, just moving on to one of the topics which I just think we need to touch on in the sense that it represents, I guess, the culture of parliament at the moment, which is really quite uncivil. It's not Um, you know, it's not kind, it's not uh, respectful at the moment in many ways. And in one way is that um, Senator David Lionhelm has said something very sexist and um, potentially defamatory, so we won't repeat what was said. Um, And then it was obviously broadcast on a um, major broadcaster as well. I mean, this was, uh, these were comments about Senator Hanson Young, which is a Green Senator, and many other politicians, both Labor and Liberal, have come out and said this is really not acceptable but I mean it is quite a less than satisfactory response from parliament isn't it to such a to something which which really is uncalled for and unprofessional yeah well I think it's more than just about uncivil words in parliament I think it reflects the culture of the right in Australia and particularly uh uh, a growing section of, of the right of politics in Australia, which is, I think, under the influence of Donald Trump and also under its own influence is becoming radicalised. So um, the right wing of politics in Australia is becoming emboldened by mm. developments in the United States um, and in the UK and in Europe. Um, and, and they're trying to to take politics in a much more right wing and um a, you know, and a, a much nastier and more confrontational direction. And really, this is what David Leinhelm's comments were all about. They're really a form of trolling. Mm-hmm. Effectively, they're trying to get Sarah Hansen Young to react um, in order to make 
Senator Lionhelm, um, you know, basically to gain publicity for him and, and in order for him to be able to posture on shows like Sky News' Outsiders where he repeated those comments, uh, much to the disgust of many of the people on Sky. Um, but but that's where we're at. You know, we're, we now in Australia have a right-wing media like the Australian, like Sky News, that's dedicated to this type of outrage, to this type of, of real uh, business model, really, of um, very similar to the US media outlets like Breitbart and Fox News. Um, so, I mean, no one was surprised, I think, that these kind of comments were amplified on Sky News. That's absolutely the modus operandi of that channel. Um, so, you know, even even though it doesn't have a lot of viewers, it's reflective of a certain proportion of, of right-wing sentiment in Australia. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not going to use the word fascist, but it's certainly authoritarian. It's certainly um, uh, misogynist, clearly misogynist in many respects. And, you know, in many cases, xenophobic and racist. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not surprised that Senator Lionhelm is not backing down. This is probably the best thing that's happened in terms of his political fortunes. He'll be seeing himself as a bit of a master tactician here, provoking a lawsuit from Sarah Hansen-Young. Um, this is exactly what he wants to do. He wants to drag politics down into the mud where he can wrestle um, and, and that will be positive for him with his rump right-wing conservative base of voters in New South Wales. Mm, and the bar does get lower and lower internationally in terms of the tone and rhetoric of politics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think what's happened in the United States is indicative. But, I mean, let's remember that Australia... Um, the, Many parts of what we might even call the mainstream right in Australia have welcomed the election of Donald Trump. When Milo Yiannopoulos travelled to Australia, he met with senators in the Liberal Party, including Senator James Patterson here in Victoria. Mm. Uh, you know, this is a fellow who's uh, openly called for journalists to be assassinated. Uh, so, you know, um, the culture of, of American hate speech really has started to infiltrate into the Australian right-wing blogosphere, the mediascape, um, shows like Sky News as Outsiders and other shows on Sky News. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think this was only a matter of time before this kind of thing would happen. And it's not surprising given that American culture does really pervade a lot of our other cultural life and we were talking previously about calls for streaming services like Netflix to have a minimum Australian content component so that uh, our own entertainment uh, and arts industries aren't completely undermined. Oh yes, but this is homegrown. You know, this is this is not American content that's infiltrated Australia. These are these are homegrown Australian misogynists. Yes, uh, you know, and and so even though yes, the Sky News model at the moment is openly modelled on Fox and Breitbart, but th these are Australians, and in many cases, these are in fact the right wing of the Liberal Party. Um, if you look at Ross Cameron, for example, on Outsiders, he's a former Liberal parliamentarian. Um, you know, if you look at some of the motions that went to the Federal Liberal Council a couple of weeks ago, uh, they would not be out of place in the US Republican Party, but they're coming from the Australian uh, centre-right party. Mm. A lot of young Liberals, in fact, in that Federal Council. Mm, the young Liberals in Australia are quite radicalised uh, towards the right, you know, and that's where propositions like privatising the ABC are coming from. Um, there's a swag of... 
uh, very right-wing, quite authoritarian things going on inside the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party is lurching to the right. I think there's no doubt about that. Mm. And it's really quite ironic given uh, that so many Liberals uh, shuddered at the idea of a Malcolm Turnbull Prime Ministership because they all viewed him as extremely left-wing and progressive. But in fact, uh, we are presumably almost even more right-wing than under an Abbott government. Yes, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think what was... What's happened under Turnbull is in order to placate the right of the party, which he's done on multiple occasions, he's ended up drifting his policy well towards them on on many issues. You know, if you look at climate change, for example, uh, the government basically has a policy not to have a policy on climate. Um, They still can't come up with an energy policy two years into Malcolm Turnbull's administration, uh, you know, two years into the second Turnbull term of government. They still haven't got their national energy guarantee signed off on by the Liberal Party, not just (laughs) inside Cabinet, but by the the backbench. And Minister Frydenberg was speaking with Laura Tingle on the ABC about this and said kind of, oh, well, some of the party, most of them, I guess, are behind it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the right wing is still holding the Turnbull cabinet to ransom on a whole range of issues. Um, and then there's plenty of issues where Turnbull's shown himself to be far more conservative than I think many people thought or realised. Um, you know, and, and a good example of that has been in welfare policy, which we've discussed on a number of occasions on the show. And another good example would be national security, where mm. the lurch to the right has been... Uh, constant really you know and where civil liberties and freedoms of speech have been steadily removed and supported by the labor government unfortunately not labor yes. government labor opposition yep Yes, that has been one of those bipartisan uh, policies or areas of policy over many years, hasn't it, National Security? That's right. And so um, in the last week, we've seen a very concerning development, which was the charging of a Canberra lawyer, Bernard Collery, and a whistleblower within the Australian or former whistleblower um, within the Australian spy agency ACES, both charged with uh, basically espionage laws. Um, very, very concerning development where you've seen not just uh, the person who revealed information about spying. And what was this about, by the way? Mm. This was about spying on Australia's neighbour, East Timor, over a oil and gas demarcation dispute in the Timor Sea. So the Australian spy agency, ASIS, actually bugged the government of East Timor. And we know about this because this whistleblower, Witness K, came forward and disclosed this information. And now that witness, Witness K, and his lawyer have both been charged under espionage law. And do you know what's crazy about this? We're not even allowed to report on it. That trial will happen in secret. So we're not even allowed to know the details of the charges of these two Australians under espionage law. It is really quite surprising, isn't it? And it reminds me of, um, I guess, America again, where we have closed courts, particularly when it comes to the military and uh, and we're not able to find out what's going on. Yep, this is literally a closed court at this stage. Mm. So, um, yeah, it, these are the kind of developments that are happening under the Turnbull government. Of course, they happen under... Uh, the previous Labor government as well, but they've accelerated under the Abbott and Turnbull governments and they really are starting to remove freedoms of speech and freedoms of expression, I think, in very concerning ways. You know, And it's really interesting, isn't it, that the right wing of politics that's so 
apparently exercised by the issue of freedom of speech that was uh, so uh, so assiduous in its campaigning in terms of things like freedom. Uh, we haven't heard a peep on them, peep out of them on this issue. No, we haven't. And Ben, just to close out our discussion, let's talk about. Um New Start and welfare because there has been a development and uh, as many things are, once you hit July 1, a lot of legislative changes and regulations come into effect and one of those has just come into effect and it is very important and will affect those people on welfare looking for a job. Yes, that's right. So since July 1, the government has changed the rules for people on welfare so that if you are now on Newstart with a job network provider, which most people on Newstart are, uh, the job network provider can now issue penalties. Um, and there's a so-called demerit point system. So mm-hmm. if you fail to turn up to a meeting um, or if your performance as a job seeker is assessed by that job network provider to be substandard, uh, then they can cut off your doll. Um, they, they can uh, issue a penalty against you under a new start. Um, and this is the first time that a private provider could make that decision. Previously, they had to refer it back to the department. And the statistics show that in 50% of the cases, those decisions were overturned. So quite an extraordinary yeah. development that the government would then give the power to issue those demerits to private providers. And, of course, there's a grave conflict of interest here because those job network providers are paid by the government to churn through the job seekers. They're completely paid to get those people off the welfare rolls. Um, so there'll be a huge incentive for those job network providers to punish job seekers Uh you know, really, essentially to meet their targets. Uh, I think it's a looming disaster, yet another looming disaster in Mm. welfare policy, but completely consistent with this government's approach to people on welfare, which is basically to delegitimise welfare altogether and and to pretend that anyone who's unlucky enough to be looking for a job is it's their fault and and the, the government's role is essentially to punish them. And what is most concerning, as you've just alluded, is that there really won't be any government regulation or oversight over these decisions that are made by private job providers. That's correct. Um, You know, no doubt some of the uh, uh, welfare organisations will try to challenge this, um, but it will take months, if not years, for any of those challenges to work their Mm. way through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Meanwhile, people who rely upon Newstart to survive and it's such a small amount of money to begin with, we'll have that cut off. That's right. It's just ripping yet another hole in an already gaping safety net. So really, you know, I think Australia has now got to the stage where we can say that we don't really have a genuine system of unemployment benefits anymore. Um, We really have a haphazard and kind of bureaucratised system of punishment of people who who need the assistance of the government because they're looking for work. Um, And where is labour on this, Ben? Labor's missing in action, I think, on many of these issues. I mean, Labor has done some reasonably good work on robo-debt back when Linda Burney was the spokesperson. Mm. I haven't heard anything from Linda Burney on this issue in particular. Um, The the reality is the job network system has failed and it needs to be completely abolished. We need to completely rework the way that we provide assistance to people on unemployment benefits and we need to move to a much more permissive system whereby people 
who are looking for work are simply given income because that's what they need in order to go out and look for work. At the moment, it's almost the reverse. We're almost punishing people because they're looking for work and we're putting meaningless workshops and meetings and um, job network agency workshops, you know, into their calendars and then punishing them if they don't meet those really rather superfluous requirements. Mm, It's highly inefficient if you think about it. If we provided people with adequate means, then presumably they'd be better equipped to find a job faster and we would save money in the long run. Look, what, what creates employment is ultimately economic growth, it's vacancies in the labour market, and then it's training, it's opportunities, it's investment in job seekers. Mm. You know, the very opposite of what this government is implementing. Yes, though we did see uh, a development at the state level where the Labor Andrews government announced that some TAFE courses would be free in areas where there are skills shortages. Yeah, it's great. I mean, there needs to be more of it. I mm. mean, I think, you know... Um, there should be a massive investment in vocational and educational training. Um, that's been another policy failure uh, from both major parties. So uh, we're not training people on the whole very well. Um, we've pretty much, as as a nation, got out of the, the business of doing vocational training in any meaningful way. Um, you know, uh, there's still, still some apprenticeships going around and the, the TAFE sector is struggling on, but it's deeply underfunded now. So we need to massively reinvest in mm. these areas. and we, But most importantly, I think we need to stop blaming job seekers. Yes, and also stop expecting every person in Australia to get a degree because not everyone wants one or should need one for the types of jobs that they would like. No, I think that's absolutely true. And indeed, if we had a proper system that was joined up between the vocational sector and the higher education sector, there wouldn't be such a problem about the the difference between the two sectors. You know, you've got the the university system, which is extremely well funded, ironically, by overseas students, and the vocational sector, which is highly underfunded, Mm. basically because governments have cut funding over decades. Um, And as a result, people are falling through the gaps. Well, that's a policy failure. It could be fixed by governments that were prepared to invest. But of course, investing requires tax revenue. It requires governments that believe in spending money on education. Um, we don't really have a federal government that believes in spending money on education at the moment. Um, and not- they're also about to give away $144 billion in tax revenue. So that's only going to make things harder going forward. Yes, which we did discuss last week, those income tax cuts that have gone through all three stages have passed. Yep, absolutely. As discussed last week, it's going to be a disaster for inequality. It's going to be great for wealthier taxpayers, uh, but it's not going to be good for the lower end of Australia. So we'll see broadening, widening inequality as a result of those changes. Yep. Ben, it's been great to speak with you again. Thanks for coming in and to to talk about federal politics. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me regularly to talk about federal politics. And he is, in fact, quoted in the book I'm going to be talking about later. David Ritter has quoted Ben Eltham twice in his book, I noted. So there you go. Famous. Um, you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. 3 Triple R. 
And you are tuned to 3RRFM. This is Amy Mullins with Uncommon Sense. And um, I said before the break that I would be speaking with two fabulous curators and they are with me now. Kirsty Grant and Denise Whitehouse join me to talk about the uh, Heidi Museum of Modern Art's new exhibition, Design for Life, Grant and Mary Featherston. And uh, just to give you an idea of their backgrounds, um, Denise uh, was previously a Senior Lecturer in Design History at Swinburne University School of Design and she's also the convener of a really fantastic um, online depository which is called the Design History Australia Research Network and uh, Denise has co-curated this uh, exhibition with writer Kirsty Grant and uh, she also was behind the NGV's Mid-Century Modern Exhibition of which I have the catalogue with me here and she also is a former director and CEO of the Heidi Museum of Modern Art and a former senior curator of Australian art at the National Gallery of Victoria. So we brought in the big guns for this discussion and um, really excited to join both Denise and Kirsty now. Hi there. Hello. Thank you for um, coming in and to talk about this wonderful exhibition. Uh, It's really interesting to see furniture front and centre in a gallery space. Um, this does happen in other institutions like the National Gallery of Victoria. It's sometimes referred to as the decorative arts. Um, this potentially <laughs> is not based on Mary Featherston's observations over the weekend. I saw um, the, that it was live streamed, the conversation um, between Denise and Mary. And um, interestingly, Mary made a comment about uh, design and furniture. And uh, she was saying that design is different to art. It has a very different intent design always has a purpose. So she was somewhat making a controversial statement to some who might perceive design or this furniture as art, um, but she didn't think it was so. Um, Denise, let's kind of, I guess, tackle that one to begin with. And I mean, do you think design I, is no, art? No, um, I move. I sorry. I work from the position that design is design, mm. and I work from the position of always looking at design as a professional um, practice. Mm. So the exhibition that we have put together on Grant Featherston is one that looks at the practice of design, at the theory, the processes, and then the objects. Mm. And the ultimate thing with Featherston design is that we are always looking at human need as opposed to consumerism, and that um, it's also the notion of a commercial outcome as well. So the Featherston ideal is that things will be functional mm. and that means what is the human need and then it is that it will be beautiful. Human need includes beauty in one's everyday life. The notion of lifting the spirits, of bringing joy through beautiful forms. And this is where art comes into it mm-hmm. with Grant Featherston, heavily influenced by the art of the day mm. and the belief that design should pick up the cultural language of the day. So his early work looks very much at the emergence of abstraction, but he's looking at the work, for instance, of Henry Moore, of the human body and the reclining, seated human body. And so he studied Henry Moore 
more in great depth mm. and took that knowledge. He also was looking at Drysdale and people such as that. So he saw the origins in the creative and the art and the sculptural, that beautiful thing. Mm. But he was also looking at manufacturing, efficiency in manufacturing, simplifying a chair down to as few parts as possible so that it could be large batch produced and ultimately with his work for Aristotle, mass produced. Yes. Very much. And then the plastics as well. So it is professional design. Featherston was a leader in the setting up of the profession of design, the Society of Designers for Industry in 1948-49 and then again in the late 50s, the Industrial Design Institute of Australia and he was often president of those things. He had little time for decorative arts because they're superfluous, they're luxurious, they are time-consuming and they do not belong to the general population. And he was a social democrat, a humanist, mm. who believed that you know everybody should have the same access to beautiful, affordable objects. It's such an important principle to start from, isn't it, that it's mm. accessible design, that people can own their own, um, not only beautiful object, but practical object that they are constantly interacting with on a daily basis. Mm. The humanist ideal that he came from, the post-war humanist ideal, he went to, he was in Darwin during the bombing of the war. He was a young man and highly traumatised by that. Mm. And so he turned to design as a way of making the world a better place to be. How does one want to be in the world? And so he studied humanist, like most of his generation did. He was swept up by humanist thinkers, and particularly the design thinkers such as Walter Gropius and Mahali Nash. And their idea was that the machine age had come out of, gone out of control during the war. I mean, it's a bit like today, really. And um, so their aim was to bring the human back into design. So if we looked at his chairs, they have the human form. If we look, for instance, Mm -hmm. at the expo chair, talking chair, which was for the Montreal, um, 67 Montreal Australian Pavilion, what it did was place the human experience of going to one of those what does it what do humans need what do people need when they go to a huge vast expo they get tired it's fatigue so they sit down in these beautiful chairs with their feet resting in white lush carpet in a salon a graceful salon and they as they sit the tape recording switches on and they sit back and they listen to people talking about aspects of Australian culture science etc and then they look at the display but it makes them not the object the centre of the experience and their level of comfort and ease. Mm. And I mean, let's describe that chair for people because they won't be able to see it right now. It is one of those chairs that is quite unique in the whole Featherston oeuvre, I guess, because, I mean, he's very well known for his contour chairs, which, as you were saying, um, very much reflect the curves of the body and are really fluid and beautiful. Um, This is a bit more, I guess, circular, 
It's totally circular mm-hmm. if you actually look at it and it encompasses the body. He would describe it as a lily enfolding a body. It's also the notion of it. I see it as a bit of a trunk, a trunk, a, you know, yeah. a stem growing up and enfolding the body. What's quite revolutionary about it is that, that it has no legs if you think mm, about it. True, yeah. It rises, so it's as close to a one-piece chair as he could get. It was made from polystyrene, mm-hmm. which is the same thing as um, was um, surfboards at that time. It was moulded. So that meant that there was, um, you know, there's not a lot of building going on. Rather, it comes out of a mould in one piece and then it has a beautifully tailored um uh, cover on it and then then so really it's a two-piece chair if one looks at it like that but because it had to be wired to carry the sound mm. it had this neat little cushion that um, triggered a mechanism in the seat that then triggered the a bank of tape recorders in the underground of, of the pavilion and then it turned on. So technically, incredibly advanced. Mm. But in terms of form, natural, growing, source in nature, simple as in nature is what Grant would say, that type of thing. And that's why he loved plastics, because he could simplify down to one piece and he could shape it beautifully in complex curves, which is what he gets there as well. Exactly. He was an innovator of mater- in his use of materials and design. Um, <laughs> Kirsty, <laughs> because I need to draw on both of your expertise, I'm going to try and um, make it as equal as possible. <laughs> I can tell that you have a fantastic working relationship by we the dynamic here. We have a fabulous relationship. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can tell. It's really great and very important, isn't mm-hmm. it, when you're co-curating a show. Um, let's, t- I guess, start from the beginning when you're walking into this exhibition um, I was very struck by the red contour chair that you see pretty much immediately when you're standing um, facing towards the exhibition, mm-hmm. turn to the left, and there's this really striking, bright, bold chair. At, at the far end of the gallery? Um, actually, the one that's right uh, almost immediately at the left. Oh, that's it's a quite, relaxation yeah, chair. Yeah, high back, exactly. Mm. The one that's... Um, the one five. It's the one five two. That's one yeah. of my uh, absolute favourite chairs it? in the exhibition. Yeah. It's one of mine too when I was ranking them <laughs> <laughs> by which one I'd love to have in my own home yeah. the most. That, well, that's um, really essentially the first uh, design in the contour range, so it dates to 1951. And that particular example, Denise knows I talk about this a lot, but yeah. it comes from the National Gallery of Victoria's collection and it's fascinating because it was actually bought for the NGV collection in about 1955, so wow. only a few years you know, after they, were first, they first went into production. And because it's been in a gallery collection, it hasn't been sat on, it hasn't been used. So it's yes, in virtually it a very good pristine condition. condition. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's probably the only one that's in, you know, it's certainly the only one I've ever seen yeah. that's in such good and original condition. So beautiful, um, I think it's Belgian linen upholstery, um, as you said, a sort of burgundy red colour with yeah. um, other um, sort of colours shot through it. And it has yeah. those... Um, you're going to have to tell me what the correct terminology is, but the dots that are p- kind of piercing into the fabric, like the... Oh, 
Oh, that one. Oh, it's, oh actually, well, we're talking about a different chair. <laughs> two red chairs. <laughs> there are many there are. red chairs. Is it that's, that that's, one you're thinking of? No, no, no one no. across the way. Oh, I also that's my other favourite as well. Okay. They're all red, unfortunately. <laughs> they are red. There are a few. Yeah. Well, we the were, one that you're... Is it this one? That's the yeah, one. Yeah. I, isn't it stunning? The yeah. um, Sorry, we're going to have to explain this to everyone because it's on radio. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> this is the only problem with talking about art and design on radio. But there's this other chair directly across from the one we're also talking about and it is a bit of a deeper red but it has this amazing grain like really vibrant colors Mm. throughout it um that is very retro i guess you would say now but um it's it's very striking yes and elegant and that's Mm. the one that is in perfectly original condition yeah Yeah. so it, it dates back to the mid 50s isn't it lucky, mm, though, because yeah. that fabric is just still so vibrant and luminous in person? Absolutely. Yeah. The fabrics yeah. are really interesting mm. when you look at them. We've been really fortunate to um, have quite a lot in original mm. or that people have, have cut, recovered with beautiful upholstery that matches, so it's been mm. really good. But that shot stoke, it's um type of called shot where it's got that strip and stripe through it. Yes. But Featherston... Um, sourced his his um, fabrics very, very carefully. Uh, so he sourced some... He got special wools made up in Sydney, etc. Mm. So he was very careful in what he chose and I'm giving it now back to Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the elements of creative expression and choice in these designs because there's the wood, um, there's the way it's constructed, Mm. there's the fabric, there's also the underlay, what's underneath supporting um, the chair and providing Mm. the cushioning. I mean, what are some of the really key elements of design that are really, I guess, (laughs) Featherston-esque? You know, what made that particular designer and his designs iconic? What was, you know, innovative about his his choices, that every choice that he was making with these kind of um, chairs, particularly in the early years that we're looking at in the 50s. Mm. I think one of the things that's particularly interesting about um, Featherston's designs is that he, as De- you know, Denise um, quoted him, he often said he wanted his designs to be simple as in nature. So he aimed to pare back the materials and the and the elements that made up the furniture. Mm. Um, so the the chair that we were talking about, the R152, it has the timber legs that are visible and the sort of the undercarriage that you know g- provides support for the seat. But then um, the seat itself is made out of plywood that was cut and bent into shape. Um, mm. Then there is padding, you know. Some, horsehair and various materials like that and then the upholstery over the top so very very simple I mean he was aiming for ultimately you know mass production I I don't know that we would necessarily say the the early material was mass produced but um, that was it was always he wanted to simplify the 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 production of the the chairs yes and these particularly the really curved Mm -hmm. chairs the contour range I mean these are collector's items in today's terms and people pay quite a lot of money for them don't they indeed indeed i mean that's one of the questions that people always ask you know why is why are people still interested in featherston design and i'm not entirely sure that i've got the answer to that i mean we've talked about it a lot and um 
you know, there are various things that come into it. They are they are functional. Yes. They are beautiful. And very comfortable. Yes. Yeah, there, yeah. Are, there are two chairs you can actually sit on in front of the television and I <laughs> yeah. availed myself of that and compared the two. Yes. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember which one it was, but I like the smaller one better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the back is just so perfectly supportive. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so it's structurally made in a very similar way to that first contour chair, mm. which is two pieces, just simply two pieces of plywood, but with a hole cut into the middle of it yes. to give it a, so that when it sits in a space, you have a continuing spaciousness. When you, you lift a chair up like that and then you put a hole in it and you've got beautiful contours, it's like a sculpture, so you're meant to see it three-dimensionally mm. and it also creates space as it did in the small homes because these were first designed for the small homes that Robin Boyd and Neil Clearahan and Peter McIntyre, that first generation, post-war generation of architects, were developing. So it was in the post-war era when we get the first modern homes with the open plan. And these are tiny houses. They had building restrictions and I think, what was it, Kirstie, about 11, 12 squares, something like that. So tiny, tiny. And these yeah. these chairs were, you know, he tries to make... They're not bulky like the big padded chair. There's no springs in these chairs. There's no padding. The upholstery is minimum. So that's the type of way that they worked. And that little chair you're talking about is just... That ended up in reception areas in... in um, what was that? Cosmetic place. Oh, up in El- and Elizabeth Arden Arden Salon. Salon in Sydney. Sydney yeah. You know, yeah. those types of places, yeah. Yeah, and... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think one of the interesting things, you said that there are two chairs that visitors to the museum can sit Mm. in and we should make the distinction that they're not chairs that have come from a private collection or from a museum collection. Um, And it's an interesting distinction between the art object and the design object that um, a number of Featherston designs are still being manufactured by Gordon Mather Industries. Under licence. Under licence. And that's a relationship that I think started with when Grant Featherston was still alive just after a big exhibition that happened in the late 80s at the NGV. Um, And so, you know, you can... uh, Unlike an art object where there's one and it's an it's an original mm. and it sits in a museum, um, you know, design is something that can live on. And you know, wonderfully, these chairs are made um, in association with Mary Featherston and the Featherston family, pretty much the way they were made originally, mm. um, as opposed to you know all the junky copies that you can also get. Um, but it's important. I think that's a really interesting distinction between art and design. That's a great and excellent point. Mm. And the chairs that you were talking about that were creating space with the the gap there at the mm. back, um, there when you walk into the second room, um, there's a TV set <laughs> arrangement. And yes. this is um, preceding television arriving in Australia. Grant came up with this idea of these chairs specifically made to be uh, situated around a television Um could you talk a bit about how he's responding to these, you know, I guess, social developments of, uh, and our individual needs as a family in our home? Mm. I might let you do the, t- the, t- yeah. <laughs> the TV yeah. space chair, yeah. I mean, that was he released that in the market in 1953 with that name. Mm. So he was always thinking forwards. And one of his very... He understood the media really well and he knew how to work it very well. 
And so by naming chairs like that, he, you know, captured the imagination, so to speak. Um, And he, I think, I suppose we could go forward from those TV chairs, which, as you say, and then I'll tell you this. In in 1956 (laughs) with the Olympic Games, of course, television came with the Olympic Games. So that chair featured all around town in different shop windows and exhibitions, you know, a type of came into its own age then. But he's always looking forward. So when we go to the pop room, you know, you've got the wonderful oboe, this totally circular chair made of um, moulded rubber, um, which is a chair that's not a chair, so to speak. No, which is yeah. just so a head. A sculpture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's a toy. It's a, you know, mm. it's an adult play toy, which is very much youth pop culture. And then you've got the numero suites, you know, which are, again, we're looking at moulded plastic here. But there he's thinking about, and he's talking about the, um, the, the chair as, as, a thing of the past. The four-legged chair is the thing of the past and rather what we get moving into are seating environments and, and so that you can mix and match them. They have a casualness that matches the changing way of life. He was very yes. much always focused on youth and mm. at that stage very much engaging with changing social values, family values. Mm. Yes, because uh, the oboe chair there is 1975, mm. the numero lounge 1974. Mm. Um, so we're moving, and the stem chair 1969. Which is quite radical. Very, yeah. yes. Mm. To, to have, as it says, it's a stem. It's one leg, mm. I guess. It's mm. not even really yes. a leg. It's just, it's something it's which is propping up. And it's swiveled. Yeah. yeah. Which was it's great a, fun. A little bit like the talking chair that it, yes. it grows up from the, the ground. Mm. Yeah, yes. One piece, yes. one very elegant piece. Yeah, yeah. it is. And it's, <clears throat> as, as most of his designs, that organic form. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, and he mm. talked about that. And what he wanted to get was the minimal amount of material um, in the most beautiful form. And that um, plastic rotational moulding was used for that and what what it is is that the the shell of the chair is as thin as an eggshell almost so it's it's hollow mm. within but it um but the the fun of it is that it's shri- it uh, swiveled around. so because it was for the young who could never keep still <laughs> <laughs> that's great and it does have an, a beautiful cushioning in the well, it was meant it well. to. It, it actually is ergonomically designed, yeah. so that it has lumbar support into it, and it has a seat that looks like it's too small. But it yes, takes, it does it, look like that. To, it, but it it's looks not. uncomfortable when you're thinking, "How's my back going to be supported by well, the chair?" Well, there you go, and mm. and so it has lumbar support in it, and also it takes um, any size. Yes, well, that is a really great room. It's very vibrant the, mm. with the colours. Mm. It's got, you know, green, purple, orange. Mm. Um, and the numero lounge that's in that room, it's um, very different to the other pieces because it doesn't actually have it any feet at all it's just this kind of mm. or it doesn't look like it unless they're kind of hidden but no, there aren't it is very no, modular yes mm. very modular mm. and well I mean, it's just it, a classic example of 70s modular furniture but yeah. it's interesting because i think mary says that's a design that she mm. and grant worked on together um and she says that it's 
the design that got closest to her ideal of um, you know the the most the perfect design mm. because it, oh, really? because yeah. of its simplicity mm. um, and I think it has that she talked about it actually on Saturday yeah. it only has really two components that's right the 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 mole the the the, the, the um, the foam, I, I suppose, that mm, forms the, the, um, the, the seat itself and then the cover that sort of pulls on and there's a, almost a drawstring. You, you know, tighten the cover around it. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah. And the thing about that was, again, that it's one, a chair that's one piece that comes out of a mould in one piece. Mm. So, therefore, you can make them very, very quickly. And when they were at their peak... In um, the late 1970s, they what was it? They were selling something like 80 to 100 units a day. Okay. So you're needing to be able to turn those out very very quickly as well. But it's also got to do with the way Featherstone thought and Grant thought in systems. Mm-hmm. So he was after um, to be able to think in systems. So that could be expanded. It started off with a few pieces and then. What we don't have on display at the exhibition is that there's a circular piece, a curved piece as well. So the notion of a system that starts off with a few, and we see it with a contour chair. We start mm. off with an armless chair, then we get an armchair, then we get that wingback chair, that, that red wingback yes. chair that you like. Mm. And then okay. we get the TV chair and we get the curl-up chair. So we're getting it. What he's thinking of is not a chair but a system of production, so it goes yeah. in that. And that's the same thing that's going on with Numero as well. Yes. And I thought I might add to you that they made that with... They would look for advanced technologies and with Numero they found um, Bridgestone. So they went to a car manufacturer um, to find the technology. They went to um, a manufacturer of car seats, car parts um, that were um, producing them. So Mm. it was a a different, you know, it wasn't the furniture industry that they made it with, it was the car industry that they made it with. Yes, and well, let's talk about the collaborative elements of his work. Um, Grant, I was interested to hear, came from Geelong, um, which is my old hood, um, but also that he and Mary met um, at different stages of their life, really, and careers, uh, but then became collaborators and partners in life, but also in professional um, design with these uh, designs and chairs. And she was herself studying interior design. What was their working relationship like? And I mean, what was the influence of Mary on Grant? I think that their working relationship and their was was incredibly um, well. It was inc- incredibly productive and successful. People who know who know them, who knew them, um, say that you know they would finish each other's sentences. So when they were working intensely on a particular design, they would obviously they're working in close close confines, but talking to each other, bouncing ideas off, and they thought very similarly. Um, when Mary was talking at Heidi on Saturday, I think she spoke about when she and Grant first met. And as you said, he was, um, you know, well, really at the height of his career. And Mary was a young interior design student. And so she might, there might have been a little bit of, um, she might, I imagine there was some awe and um, <laughs> mm, yeah. of this, this very successful man. But they found that they shared very similar ideals. Um, but also one of the other things she talked about was that their, uh, 
th- th- their love of nature was a really something that bonded them and that's when when you look at their designs the references and links back to for- the forms of nature are very very strong and that's mm. why we've got something in the exhibition that is I think a slightly unusual element Um, and it's in that room opposite the talking chair there's a a wall essentially that Mary has um, created and it's a series of shelves with a lot of images of her work some of her interiors for schools and education spaces some of Grant's nature photography um, but also objects from the Featherstone collection of natural objects so there are gum leaves there are shells and bones and all sorts of things that have been really um, that are are a constant source of um, inspiration and influence for both of them and Mm. you know curiously there's a wonderful photograph um, of Grant in his studio in about 1947 um, and it was a little loft in Richmond and there's a, a the a cow's pelvis bone that you can see in that photograph and that's in the exhibition as well it's been in the Featherstone family since you know the late 40s <laughs> <laughs> and there's another thing that's been in the Featherstone family for quite a while and that's the Featherstone house mm. which was designed by Robin Boyd and I mean they obviously gave Robin Boyd a bit of a brief and he came up with a masterpiece really mm. and that brought in the nature you know that that passion that they have for nature inside like quite literally inside the house there's a pond and there are Mm. platforms like multi-levels and it's very um filled with light and there's interviews um where you can sit on those chairs and watch the tv and take you around the featherstone home Mm. um so you know you've conducted an interview with mary and she's talking about the house and a range of other um topics but in terms of how i mean their design has interacted in their own home i mean what what's the connection like was their home an expression of their own ideals i i think so i mean um it's interesting again mary talks about um that they you know they rented two small flats and then one to work in and one to live in but they needed more space so she convinced Grant that they needed to build a house. He didn't. He didn't really want to own a house. Didn't think it was um, <laughs> necessary. I think. Yeah. Um, and he said, "All right, if we're going to do it, Robin will have to design it for us." So they went to him and gave him a brief. Um, and uh, I mean, I think you know, Mary talks about it as having been the most wonderful space to live in. It provides a living space, a working space, storage. Um, there was also a um, a small, smaller accommodation beside the main house where Mary's parents lived. Um, and that's, uh, as we were saying earlier, you know, four generations of the family have now lived there. You know, they, they still live there. Um, but it does, it, you know, th- their love of the natural world is incorporated. Um, I think there's no, there's almost, there's no distinction between the domestic space and the workspace. It is one, you know, mm-hmm. it was part of their well, life. Well, it was, it was, that was the design for life. Yeah. Um, people who knew them said there was no division between mm-hmm. that and there wasn't. Um, they, I don't think, you know, they didn't sleep long hours. Um, they worked very intensely. And we've got photos of the house when the first war, um, they first moved in. And you can see where their studio was and then where mm-hmm. the living space was. And then, you know, the um, space, the house itself became, was the studio where they would make their models, prototype, etc., test it out, then photograph it, those types of things. Mary has also talked about as um, 
one of the things about the exhibition is that we do actually, and the book, we do showcase Mary's later career after Grant yes. died in the design of learning environments. And mm. she's been a, a pioneer in this area and very influential in the redesign of schools over the last um, 10, 20 years, so to speak. But she has talked about how being in that space um, has helped her understand space, work through space, because as you said, what you've got is four platforms which you work before. There are no conventional steps, so to no. speak. You walk from one set of bricks to another set of <laughs> bricks and jump the space and yeah. end up on a platform. So you're always aware of yourself within space and how mm. space works. We also have some wonderful images of... Um, children at play within the house and there's a marvellous image of a hot air balloon being um, created within in the house. Because a small was, one. A small one. <laughs> but it's just a significant one. It's yeah. not tiny. And, you know, that type of um, always look, always creative, always yeah. in, in awe and of wonder. And as you said, there's nature. You've got earth. You've got garden in it. And it, the house is in a modernist way, in an Australian modernist way, built onto the site. You don't excavate the site like we see now, mm. um, but rather you work with the site. And it was a difficult site, but Robin Boyd placed the house very beautifully onto it so that one whole wall, floor-to-ceiling cathedral wall, I'd call it, you know, it looks out onto the parkland. Um, and the house goes down into that. And as you said, it's got ponds in it. Yeah. Goldfish. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it, you do feel like you're, when you're looking at it, it feels like the, I guess the the bush is really your part of it. Like there, there really yeah. is no, even though there is a glass wall there, it re, I really don't feel that there's a great distinction. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that the ceiling is trans, the, the roof is translucent. Mm. And so you hear nature as well. Yeah, it's a stunning, stunning place. I can't even imagine going there. Um, and it is also um, great that that there was that collaborative partnership between architects such as Robin Boyd and designer mm. of furniture. Um, I want to just quickly talk about Aristoc and that um, that work because there is a section of the exhibition which is a bit more utilitarian um and i noticed you know one of the stools it looked like a stool that my grandma used to sit on (laughs) you know and peel the vegetables for Mm -hmm. the soup um Mm. you know the and the stackable chairs Mm. i mean these are really highly recognizable designs that um you know they're still just as elegant, really, as any other chair. They're just a bit more fu- practical, I guess, and um, even more accessible than the contour chairs and those other kind of lounge uh, furniture. Um, what kind of collaboration or partnership was did Grant have? Well, I mean, I mean, the other thing is that they were they were able to be mass produced yeah. in vast, vast numbers. So the stackable chair that we've got, we've got two of. We would yes. have loved to have had ten if we could find them in good condition. Mm. But that's the Delma chair from 1963, and I think okay. there are about two hundred thousand of those produced. And um, that we, I suppose it working with metal uh, in a, a mechanized, highly mechanized factory um, it took took 
the furniture that Featherstone was designing into a different realm from the the, the timber based material. Um, but he approached we he approached Aristoc in about 1956. Is that yeah? The about right 1956. Date? Yeah. you've got the um, you've got ICI House. You've got the rise of the skyscraper, so steel metal language, and furniture starts to look to mm. steel. Sorry, <laughs> and um, Grant approached Aristoc. If yeah. they would start, you know, would, would they make his furniture? Because they were skilled um, makers of um, the chrome dining table and laminate table, dining table. Um, but they were also interested in patented products. So that's the difference. Mm. So he, uh, the consultancy that he set up with them was that he would initiate projects working with them, working with their, their skills, their high, high-tech skills, engineer, they had an engineer, and created what's known as contract furniture. That is furniture that services, um, you know, halls, big buildings, and very much to meet the architecture market at the moment, at that moment where it was expanding. Melbourne was in a huge expansion, mm. of building expansion, and there was a need for... Uh, furniture that would meet offices because the other thing we've got in the exhibition is his interior design work mm. of those office spaces. Okay. Yeah. So with um, Aristoc, it was a relationship that lasted close to a decade, well, over a decade, from 1956-57 through to STEM. That was the last that they produced. Um, they produced largely, um, as I said, patented new designs, very high quality, um, and they dominated the market. They, um, d- well, they shaped the market, that that market. The thing that was very innovative is as the Delmet chair was designed for Monash University, mm-hmm. the new university, it was a student chair. But as you said, your grandmother had it and it was fun to be in the exhibition yeah. with people going... <laughs> I remember that, you know. Well, and saying, I've got, got that, that now in my painting painted. studio. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think that was, a, you know, a good yeah, design special. or a clever yeah, design. My, yeah, my mother was about to throw it out and I grabbed it, <laughs> you know, or oh, everybody's found one on a nature strip or something like that. Yeah. But that chair, the thing that was significant was that it did the commercial market, the contract market, but it also moved into the domestic market mm. as well. And that was the a real cleverness of Featherstone. He could go across markets in those ways. Mm. So um, beside Delma, there was also Mitzi, and she's, she's there. A stacking chair that was very beautiful and that would fit into the cafeteria of ICI House, for example. So it um, And it could fit into a home. And it did. People thought the salesman said it won't sell, but it did. It just ran off the market, so to speak. So mm. both both very advanced in their technology, but also very advanced in their form and their aesthetic language. Yes, and it just goes to show how iconic they've become, that they're very recognisable mm. to, to everyone who's coming mm, in yeah. and not necessarily an expert or a collector of modernist no, pieces. No. I mean, the, the other thing about the Delma chair, of course, and this, this happens in furniture always, but they were they were so successful early on, but then they were, they were copied almost immediately by other, by other companies locally and um, internationally, but not made as well and not as refined. You know, when you see yeah. the copy, once you've had a look at the Featherston and Aristoc one, you can mm-hmm. you can you can tell the difference. The finish, the upholstery, it's it's not there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it is very precise and 
um, yeah, the joining, I guess, it, all of that welding and it's yeah. not rough. It's very, very... Absolutely. Yeah. Attention mm. to detail is amazing. Yeah. Mm. I think mm. the other thing that's interesting about Aristotle and that adds another element to our understanding of Grant Featherston in particular is that at a certain point he... Um, he started to manage all of the design for the company, so not just the design of the furniture, but their graphic design, oversaw the photography. Mm-hmm. So there's a in the exhibition there's a case of um, promotional material, you know, brochures, and they were all designed by Featherston. And I think he, you know, he thought about the design, functional and beautiful design, from you know, in every aspect of life and his and his work. So yeah. that's, that's something yeah. else that I don't think. Well, certainly I hadn't understood that in my, you know, before, no, I, before I started working that, with Denise. <laughs> <laughs> and that was revolutionary. Yeah. And he'd been looking at um, Charles and Ray Eames, but more mm. specifically Herman Miller and George um, Nelson's yes. development of Herman Miller. So that he was, he shaped Aristotle on that, so to speak. The other thing that's fun, because we talked about the TV chair, you know, by naming a chair Mitzi. I mean, it's a steel chair, but he gives yeah. it personality. <laughs> and Mitzi was a film star of the day. There was a film called South Pacific and she was a dancer. And when you look at the chair, you can see this, you know, this female form within it. But he gave them personality. So he named every piece mm. of Aristotle furniture. So there was pagoda line. There was arabesque, which was described as a ballet dancer on <laughs> pirouetting, you know, things like yeah. that. And it captures the imagination very quickly. Yes, it absolutely does. I'm speaking with um, Denise Whitehouse and Kirsty Grant, the curators of a new Heidi exhibition called Design for Life. Um, just finally, I want to talk about how you've put this together. Curating a exhibition is a, a feat for anyone. Um, this is really important because it's bringing furniture from a range of collections um, not necessarily held at the Heidi um, but from the National Gallery, from private collectors. I mean what was your process to distill such a huge body of work down and how I guess did you convince people to give you (laughs) to you? Well look we started with public collections and as you said there's quite a lot of material from the National Gallery of Victoria um, there are also great pieces from the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. The majority of other works are from private collections. Um, I'd curated a, a show at the NGV a number of years ago and so knew of a number of private collectors. Some of those collectors we made contact with again and looked at what they had and some of them had added to their collections in, in the intervening period. Um, it's, you know, there's a strong collector network. So mm. once you've got some connections there, um, people put you in touch with other people. But we were also helped um, by uh, Leonard Joel Auction House because obviously they, in Melbourne, they're the um, auction house that trade in this material. Mm. So um, Anna Gresham there helped us a lot when we said, all right, we're looking for this, 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 this and this piece. And um, there was one fabulous story, actually. There's a, uh, a mod- series of modular units from the mid-1950s in the exhibition. Um, that I had never seen before and Denise had never seen before and I don't think Mary had ever seen them other than Mm. in photographs. Mm. Um, And we really wanted to try and find some of that material to say, you know, he didn't just design chairs, you know, there was it was much more um, diverse. And so I spoke to Anna about this centre of photograph of the material 
And she said, oh, I think somebody contacted me a few years ago with some of that. Anyway, yeah. long story short, she put us in touch with these people and they um, had the, the suite. Um, and wonderfully, the story was that the, the people who own it now, it had been a, a housewarming gift to this man's parents in the mid-1950s. And it's wow. still in the family and mm. it's in beautiful condition. And it's a, real, it's a real highlight of the show. And a number of people who've already seen the exhibition said, we've never seen one of those before. So it's great when those sorts, sorts of unexpected pieces um, come to light. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're running out of time now, but um, I want to thank you both for your time and expertise. It's been great to chat with you. Um, I've been speaking with Kirsty Grant and Denise Whitehouse, and the exhibition is called Design for Life, Grant and Mary Featherston, and I believe the exhibition runs until the early October? 7th of October. Yeah, and there's a lot of things happening there with the public programs so people can look up um, some of the associated events. Thank you both. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. Uh, As I said, I have with me uh, a fantastic guest and he joins me on the phone. His name is David Ritter and he is uh, the CEO of Greenpeace Australia and uh, the Pacific and he's also the author of a new book which is called The Cold Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy. And uh, I was speaking to David off air because the way that I know David is... um, Many years ago, and I almost don't know which year it was, but it could have been like 2009 or 10, um, we were tweeting and my my Twitter handle um, was get shortened and people assumed I was a man uh, for the majority of the time because I had this cartoon picture of Bill Shorten um, on my handle to talk about or I guess reference the fact that he had um, got ridden of two leaders at various points in his uh, position as a faction boss. But uh, David and I were tweeting many late nights, or certainly in, in my time, presumably it wasn't so late for him if he was in London, about the Leveson Inquiry, which was a UK uh, media inquiry into the News of the World phone hacking scandal. So um, I welcome David now, who was my illustrious tweeting partner and also <laughs> appreciates a single malt whiskey, I believe. Uh, look, I'll make no comment on the latter, but it's great to be reunited with you after all these years. You too. Oh, yes, no, I just remember fondly that um, it was one of those inquiries which was so gripping and riveting at the time um, that I pretty much live-streamed every hearing um, of it. And you know, looking back on that now, as you were, we were saying off-air, um, the, the developments of Brexit and Trump, th- that kind of whole scandal looks really quite bland and beige now um, in comparison to some of the major kind of cataclysmic events that have happened since then. Well, it does feel a little as if we live through a time of just rolling scandals, um, all of which seem to have in common uh, that there are vested interests who want to uh, grab hold of what should be 
uh, infrastructure in the public good and instead uh, pervert it to their own uh, their own causes, their own interests. Mm. And there have always been vested interests, but there seems to be um, more and more lax um, checks on the vested interests of particularly big business and um, the top end of town, so to speak. Your book, The Cold Truth, is really centred around um, the Adani proposal for the Carmichael mine in Queensland, but it also does really look at the history of coal in Australia in terms of its um, part in our economy, but also really what's been happening, I guess, somewhat underneath the surface. Some of the things that are not quite as visible to the general public if they haven't been paying close attention. Um, But I I want to start off with how you start this book, which is you, um, you provide this beautiful space in the prologue for Adrian Baragaba um, to write a, a basically a chapter, I guess, about the significance of the land um, of which the Adani mine, the Carmichael mine, would be placed on. And um, this is, he, he's speaking on behalf of or as part of the Wangan and Jagalingu traditional owners. And he talks about um, the significance of of the land and how just how closely tied he and his ancestors are to the land on which um, this proposed mine is to be placed. Could you talk a bit about, I mean, the the Indigenous population's connection to this particular area and I guess what Adrian was saying and why it's just so... um, meaningful to them, not just on an environmental level, but on a spiritual and cultural level? Sure. Well, when I was planning the the book with the um, publishers, UWA Publishing, and they were absolutely fantastic to work with, um, part of the conversation was how do we have a book that's not just sort of, um, you know, me talking about things from from a personal perspective, but brings in lots of voices. And so it's a book that's got some scientists um, in there, some, an economist in there, um, uh, various other uh, voices who provide really, um, you know, terrific perspectives on things. But one thing we agreed on was that um, at the very front of the book there needed to be a strong uh, Indigenous voice because the struggle of Indigenous people uh, for land justice in Australia uh, transcends um, in time and scope every other contest um, that is going on over country. Now, in the specific case of um, Adani uh, and the um, uh, the Galilee coal base, and you have the Wangan and Jagalingu peoples who you mentioned, who have simply never consented to the destruction that is proposed for their country. Um, now, Adrian himself says in that chapter um, his his group uh, did not consent, have not consented, and they won't ever consent. And uh, the reason why they, they won't uh, is because of the scale of the destruction that the uh, Adani's Carmichael mine or any of the other coal mines planned for the Galilee Basin would wreak on their traditional country um, and what that would mean for um, the, the practising of traditional law and custom and so on. And, and what we have to remember is that the, the system, the, the native title system in Australia that, that um, Indigenous peoples uh, have to work with doesn't actually give any right of veto 
Um, so stuck in a position um, where uh, you can either sort of uh, consent or, or refuse, but your refusal is sort of ignored. Um, Adrian Buruguba and the Wangata Jagalungu people said, well, we're simply not accepting the injustice of that. Um, we don't consent and we're going we're gonna to oppose this to the very end. Well, it's an excellent uh, point because really in the native title legislation, it, they make it hard enough to prove an ongoing connection to the land um, for Indigenous people, but then to not even have um, a say over such a, a significant, um, you know, piece of their country uh, is really shocking to even wrap your head around. Um, he writes, and I'll quote uh, a part from this chapter, that um, one of the major reasons we have never consented to an Indigenous land use agreement with Adani for the Carmichael mine is that there was insufficient honest explanation and acknowledgement of the adverse and irreversible impacts on the values of our country. And he also references the fact that not only would it impact upon their land, but also surrounding lands and other Indigenous peoples. So, I mean, the the way that um, the Adani uh, Corporation has gone about um, explaining the impact, the environmental impact, but also the economic impact of this mine, um, Adrian says, has not been open or honest or, or accurate. I mean, what is your characterisation of the way in which um, this coal mine has been um, proposed and, I guess, presented to the Indigenous peoples? Well, look, I, I need to be absolutely uh, straight about this. I haven't been involved in any of the negotiations or any of the meetings, so I, haven't, I, I, I can't, in a sense, form a, um, uh, an informed view in, in that way. But the, the position that, that uh, is made out by Adrian and that I've heard others from um, the Wangan and Jagalingu um, also speak to is simply that, that uh, they do not feel there has been an open and honest communication. Um, but above and beyond that, even if there had been an open and honest communication, what that would have conveyed is that this is an absolutely disastrous project um, for the future of... Uh, country and um, that's both in terms of the sheer destruction of place that goes with building an, an open cut coal mine that's uh, of that scale <laughs> it goes with the taking of water, it goes with the loss of wildlife and habitat and of course it goes with the, the climate change that is uh, driven by coal mining um, you know the, the, there, it's currently um uh, forecast that we could be facing up to four degrees of warming by 2100 if we can't get our act together globally. Now, um, four degrees of warming spells disaster for traditional law and custom, just as it spells disaster for um, other societies and civilizations. You know, nobody, there, there is no plan for getting out of four degrees of warming. Well, exactly. There's no no amount of adaptation can get around such catastrophic changes to the climate and the environment that will then be affected, the whole biodiversity. Hello? Yep. Oh, sorry, I thought that... No, that's okay. Lost. I was just adding um, to you. It was a, a dramatic pause in sentence, but no, that's, that's right. <laughs> I mean, 
Um, already we're seeing uh, marine populations uh, and terrestrial populations of animals, of, of wildlife, uh, move as the temperatures are changing. But, but there gets a point where you can't move any further. Um, if if, if the, the zone, that is, the sort of temperature that you're used to living in is simply gone, well, well there's no option for you. Um, and that doesn't just apply to uh, species of plants and animals. It also applies to human activity. So, for example, we've, we've seen on uh, Four Corners recently uh, Australian wine growers saying, well, we can keep moving south for a while, but if warming continues, well, where do we go? Exactly. And we have seen a little bit of movement from the National Party uh, since Barnaby Joyce stepped down as leader um, in terms of at least acknowledging climate change. And I think part of that is that the, even the farmers uh, lobby has acknowledged um, and come out very recently to say that we need to do something now because um, the evidence is right in front of our faces. Well, I think this is enormously significant. Um, I mean, there's this division within uh, the primary production communities in Australia. And on the one hand, you've got um, the fossil fuel miners. Uh, you've got coal miners and coal seam gas miners. And on the other side, you've got everyone else. Uh, because if you, if you run a farm, uh, you don't want the droughts that are being driven by mining and burning coal uh, and if you run a, a vineyard you don't want the droughts that are being driven by mining and burning coal uh, and so on and so the, the comments that we have seen particularly over the weekend from the, the head of the National Farmers Federation saying that uh, global warming is real and that the swings in temperature are really having an impact on people this is this is incredibly significant um, what what is being driven by the coal industry and its apologists in people like Matt Canavan is a very radical uh, view of what should happen to the Australian to Australian rural environments and to the bush um, and it's a radical view that says you don't worry about um, four degrees of warming by 2100 you don't worry about the effect that'll have on people on families on communities all that matters is digging up coal um, it is an extreme and radical view of things um, and it particularly comes up uh, actually often I mean when you get to talking about water. Uh, so one of the um, anecdotes that I describe in the book is a conversation with um, a young bloke at a, at a bar in northern Queensland. Um, and we were having sort of one of the most Queensland conversations ever, if you can believe it, about the price of pineapples. Um, and then the, the conversation sort of uneasily segued to Adani's Carmichael proposal. And... You know, there was a, there was a bit of a, a bit of a chat about it, and the, then the bloke sort of per, uh, paused, and you know he didn't know where I worked. As far as he was concerned, this was just two people having a chat, and he just sort of said, "Well, you know, in terms of the water that Adani want, I reckon they're just having a laugh." And what he was referring to there was the unlimited water license that has been granted. Uh, without even the opportunity for public comment um, by the Queensland state government to Adani. And this sort of um, sneakiness around water, this sort of having a laugh uh, at the expense of the Australian people and at the expense of the Australian environment, um, this is continuing. So just uh, right now, um, uh, this week, we've got 
um, Adani now trying to get permission to pump up the 5,000 Olympic swimming pools of water out from the Suja River uh, and wanting to evade federal water laws through a sort of um, sneaky bureaucratic manoeuvre. Now, the only way we can stop this is if the Federal Environment Minister, Josh Frydenberg, um, decides to invoke the water trigger that exists under federal laws so um look if you if you like if you're listening to this and you're like me and you're not happy about sneaky means being used to steal our water to go to adani's coal mine then jump on the phone to josh frydenberg's office and uh let him know that um uh at the water trigger should be pulled and adani should be accountable for this Yes, exactly. Um, Josh Frydenberg is a member in Melbourne, in um, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. So certainly there are probably many people who even reside in Josh Frydenberg's electorate who could voice their um, own opinion. Uh, And certainly I'm sure that would be heard strongly as well. In terms of the water, it is really shocking. Um, You write that in April 2017, a 60-year water licence was granted to Adani with no volumetric cap. So they can essentially take unlimited groundwater from the Great Artesian Basin for the life of the mine. And as you were saying, that person um, in the pub when you were talking about um, water, he was saying, well, the farmers actually really need it. It's not like you have an abundance of water that is um, ready to to give away and be wasted. It's actually a really um, tight resource. And then really close um, to that discussion of water, I was even more shocked um, to read that you say Four Corners reporter Stephen Long studied a range of records and reported um, extraordinary levels of engagement between uh, lobbyists on behalf of Adani and the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, which apparently 60% of the meetings um, bet- that the Queensland Premier has held with any lobbyist were on behalf of Adani. I mean, that's insane that it's over 50%. It's like quite literally a huge proportion of any person making presentations to the top decision maker in that state was on behalf of Adani and the Carmichael coal mine. Yeah, look, absolutely. And that was a great bit of investigative uh, research done by Stephen Long. Um, And it's really representative of the problem that we have more broadly, which is that fossil fuel companies, coal mining companies, um, other vested interests get the sort of access to our decision makers um, that the rest of us don't get unless we band together and and, um, uh, and uh, do things like uh, ring Josh Frydenberg's office. Um, and it, what, what we need, of course, are a range of um, reforms to stop that sort of thing from happening. Um, so we need much tighter rules about lobbyists, we need uh, real-time donation disclosures. Uh, we need an end to the practice of revolving doors where um, ministers and ministerial advisers just go in and out of office into um, the private sector, often inv- often advising um, fossil fuel companies. Uh, we, of course, an example we a, would be Martin Ferguson. Well, an example would indeed be Martin Ferguson, mm. um, although uh, there are others. Mark Vale, for example, came out of federal parliament and walked uh, more or less straight into a job with uh, a coal mining company in New South Wales. 
Um, of course we need a federal ICAC. Um, you know, I don't think there is any Australian um, around, really, who doesn't think that uh, it's appropriate for our democracy just to have proper checks and balances, proper levels of scrutiny. Um, you know, of course we need an independent and properly funded ABC. Uh, again, it's a, a critical component in our, um, in our democracy. Exactly. And I want to talk a little bit about companies and how they've, I guess, hijacked the discussion and also those lobby groups we've been talking about and that you write about in the book, like the Minerals Council, um, the Business Council of Australia. Uh, There's an example, a global example that you talk about, um, transnational corporation Peabody Coal, um, who engaged a global PR firm, Burson Marstella, to shift a conversation away from climate change and air pollution, which is, you know, closely linked to coal, um, and they found another almost ingenious replacement um, or spin to put on this, which I've often heard government ministers use every day almost when when this issue comes up about Adani, particularly on RN Breakfast, um, is often when I hear it. And that's ministers talking about how um, energy poverty is a major issue in developing countries and that Australia and Adani would be doing a great, you know, service as global citizens to lift people out of poverty by digging up our coal and providing it to um, developing nations like India. Yeah, well, what um, uh, the subject of this book and our ancient conversations via Twitter on the Leveson Inquiry have in common is that they both, to some extent, um, involve exposing what looks like cartoon villainy when you first sort of see it. I mean, the idea, as you say, that, that multinational coal companies just sort of engage PR consultants to um, uh, create uh, spin um, seems awfully far-fetched, but it's all now very much on the public record. Um, now, the, the truth is that coal is not the answer to energy poverty. Uh, the coal is a source of um, severe public health impacts. Coal is, as, as Professor Hilary Bambrick says uh, in her chapter in The Coal Truth, um, coal kills, it's as simple as that. Um, we're also seeing uh, rapidly India actually move away from coal. Um, very different to the story that's told publicly um, in Australia. Uh, and um, that, But that hasn't stopped the success, as you say, of the PR campaign uh, that, that has been put together by various uh, big coal interests to get Australian politicians and others spinning this line about um, uh, overseas poverty. Now, I think there are just a couple of things to, to remember about this. If, if the current Australian government genuinely cared about global living standards, then they would make good on Australian commitment to international development aid under the Millennium Development Goals. And instead, what we've seen is a cutting of, of international uh, aid and development. So let's let's not pretend that the current Australian government actually cares about uh, about these things. Um, then the second thing to say is um, it's obviously absurd to imagine that the primary motivation of a coal company is going to be lifting uh, people out of poverty, even were that true. 
what coal companies uh, want to do is to maximise uh, their profits. Um, and when they engage in PR campaigns around energy poverty, the reason why they're doing that is uh, simply to uh, try and enhance their own public image, their own social licence. There's no motive for it other than that. It's an entirely cynical exercise. Indeed, and you reference corporate social responsibility and some of the community activities that many uh, resources uh, companies engage in, like donating, um, you know, soccer balls or fitness equipment to to areas or playground equipment um, so, and then have their, their logos, you know, front and centre to say, look what we've done to, to support you. We care about um, our local communities that we operate in. Um, and it's another way of, I guess, enhancing and ensuring that they have a social licence. Um, you do say, though, that this social licence can be withdrawn. Um, you say that ultimately there is only really one force capable of holding the fossil fuel industries to account, the power and determination of organised people. In the end, every business can exist only for as long as it has the social consent of the community. So, I mean, you're really talking about um, the really strong and active and organised exercise of democracy and of um, collective uh, lobbying and activism that has already really sprung um, sprung up in many places. Uh, but, I mean, what has been your observation in terms of the community grassroots level campaigning um, around the Adani proposed Carmichael mine and, um, you know, what more needs to be done at the moment in terms of that organisation and democratic power that needs to be wielded? Well, look, absolutely. Um, when roused, never doubt the power and determination of the Australian people. I mean, we, we have one story that is told back to us um, too often by our politicians, which is a negative story and an individualist story and a story that denigrates the potential of the people of Australia. But if you look at our track record of, um, of workers' rights, of women getting the right to vote, uh, of dismantling uh, some of the legacy of our racist past. Uh, if you look at all of those things, and if you look at environmental victories, the Franklin Dam's the most famous, of course, um, and one and looks around us now at the rise of this remarkable movement across Australia um, that is opposing coal, opposing coal seam gas, opposing deep water oil drilling in the Great Australian Bight. It, it's truly a thing to behold. Um, and one of, the, one of the sort of things I try and describe in the book is the sheer number of organisations that are involved uh, the individuals that, that are involved, people who've, who've um, just seen what's going on and spontaneously set up a, a local action group or, or got together to, to lobby their local MP. And the reason why this is so important is because there is no other force out there that is capable of bringing down the fossil fuel industry, the coal miners and the rest that are holding our future hostage. So, look, it could not be more important. Um, for anyone out there listening who has ever written a letter to an MP, they get read. 
you've put your name on a petition, great. Put your name on 10 more petitions. You're worried about feeling alone, don't feel alone because there are hundreds of thousands of Australians who are in this with you and together we are going to succeed. We are going to prevail over the coal mining industry. You know, already we have seen uh, uh, years of opposition mean that uh, the Adani mine has not been built, that other mines in the Galilee Basin have not been built. It is our job together to ensure that they will never be and that our politicians start acting in the public interest rather than in the vested interests of coal companies. Exactly. And there is a question really over its commercial viability at the bare minimum, especially given the fact that uh, the state and federal governments have been so open to providing support. I mean, you do list some of the things which um, ha- that has been proposed, such as the Queensland Labor government offering Adani a $350 million royalties holiday. Um, you know, there was a proposition um, which has not gone through, but that um, the in- National Infrastructure Fund actually support uh, the building of the railway to the mine. I mean, there are so many um, things that the governments have offered inducements, really, to get this project to happen. I mean, what can explain that? Like, why do they think that um, that that's necessary, really, to, to make a project happen and why do they want it to happen in the first place? Well, the, the writer Anna Crean... Um and a, a fairly wonderful description of this, an evocative description of this uh, uh, last year when she described the uh, Australian political system as effectively being subject to a Stockholm syndrome. So it's almost like decision makers, both in, in Parliament and at a bureaucratic level, are sort of captured um, by the coal industry. And normal considerations around, well... Um, is this actually in the public interest or for those who claim to be in favour of the free market, all of a sudden that goes out the window when you're talking about coal, uh, is because of this uh, culture in which the the, uh, decision makers have simply been captured uh, by um, the fossil fuel industry and it's a a sort of... um, it's a sort of uh, insider culture of, you know, everyone knowing how this is the way business is done, mate. Um, it, it, things almost become sort of beyond question. Um, the ability to independently evaluate whether something is actually in the public interest or not uh, just seems to go out the window. Mm. Um, but again, the only way that we can shift away from this is through um, the kind of reforms that mean we have a better, healthier, more open democracy, and that's only going to be achieved um, through the, the power of organised people demanding change. Exactly, and and there is this um, misnomer around the um, financial crisis where Australia avoided recession and you talk about um, the fact that many people are under the uh, wrong impression, in fact, that it was the mining industry that the resources industry that kept Australia afloat and um, Dr Ken Henry who was the Treasury Secretary at the time and is now actually um, Chairman of NAB said that uh, he's heard on a number of occasions um, people say including senior commentators that the mining industry saved Australia from recession Um, he said these statements are not supported by the facts I mean there's a lot of um, myth making around 
the significance in terms of jobs creation and um, its contribution to Australia's economy in a contemporary sense. Um, but I want to, to finish on a particularly inspiring and fascinating anecdote that you end this book on, and it's from Jeff Cousins, who is a businessman and outgoing president of the Australian Conservation Foundation. And he recounts this trip that he made with three others to India to basically um, present a, a letter, a signed letter um, to Adani and also to intercept um, the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk while she was on a tour over there in India. Um, what do you think that this example demonstrates and what made this kind of, I guess, act of activism so special? Um, well, look, it's a, it's a it's a great chapter in the in the book. Um, Jeff does this sort of biggle, biggles like dash um, across the sea, and it's a, a remarkable episode in the whole remarkable campaign. But I think what it what it tells us really is, um, you know, I sort of said to Jeff, look, you know, how about writing a chapter from a business perspective? But he, he came back and said, look, I'm an environmentalist first and foremost, um, which ended up being the the title that of his chapter in the book and I think what's so significant about that is that it tells all of us that we can all be environmentalists first and foremost and whether it's using the the influence that that someone like a Jeff Cousins has or using the influence that you or I have or that anyone who's listening to this has our our kind of job if we you know care about the future of the place is to use our influence to turn the tide on the coal industry to join with our fellow Australians doing what we can um, and to, to seek that flourishing future that is better for all um, rather than what the coal industry wants, which is a, a future of four degrees of warming by 2100 with a broken Great Barrier Reef with not enough water for farmers, with droughts and um, pestilence, frankly. Um, uh, we, we need to stand for something different to that, something much, much finer and... Um, the, the lesson, I guess, of, of Jeff Cousins' mission is that um, we can all do our bit. Yes, exactly. And it is really um, a very funny, uh, in some ways, recounting of a what is a fascinating and must have been a bit of an adventure, really, um, to to go over there. Um, but yeah, it's all of the book is fantastic and it's great to see so many different contributors um participating and that you've made it such a collaborative project. Um, so I really commend you, David, on this book and thank you uh, very much for taking the time to talk about it today. Cheers, I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. And that was David Ritter, who is the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, and he is the author of The Cold Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy. And um, as he said, it's out through the University of Western Australia Press. And uh, it is really interesting because it has um, a whole range of other authors as he said uh, such as John Quiggin Leslie Hughes, Tara Moss Adrian Baragaba and many more so it's worth checking out This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au